Chapter One of the Crevice. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Crevice by William J. Burns and Isabel Ostrander. Chapter One Pennington Lawton and the Grim Reaper. Had New Illington been part of an empire instead of one of the most important cities in the greatest republic in the world, the cry, the king is dead, long live the king, might well have resounded through its streets on that bleak November morning when Pennington Lawton was found dead, seated quietly in his armchair by the hearth in the library, where so many vast deals of national import had been first conceived, and the details arranged which had carried them on and on to brilliant consummation. Lawton, the magnate, the supreme power in the financial world of the whole country, had been suddenly cut down in his prime. The news of his passing travelled more quickly than the extras which rolled damp from the presses could convey it through the avenues and alleys of the city, whose wealthiest citizen he had been, and through the highways and byways of the country, where his marvellous mentality and finesse had so manifestly strengthened in its position as a world power. At the banks and trust companies there were hurriedly called directors' meetings, where men sat about long mahogany tables and talked constrainedly about the immediate future and the vast changes which the death of this great man would necessarily bring. In the political clubs his passing was discussed with bated breath. At the hospitals and charitable institutions, which he had so generously helped to maintain, in the art clubs and museums, in the cosmopolitan opera house, in the founding of which he had been the leading spirit and unfailingly thereafter its most generous contributor, he was mourned with a sincerity no less deep because of its admixture of self-interest. In aristocratic drawing-rooms there were whispers over the teacups, the luck of Raymond Hamilton, the rising young lawyer, whose engagement to Anita Lawton, daughter and sole heiress of the dead financier, had just been announced, was remarked upon with the frankness of envy, left momentarily unguarded by the sudden shock. For three days Pennington Lawton lay in simple but veritable state. Telegrams poured in from the highest representatives of state, clergy, and finance. Then, while the banks and charitable institutions momentarily closed their doors, and flags throughout the city were lowered in respect to the man who had gone, the funeral procession wound its solemn way from the aristocratic church of St. James to the graveyard. The last extras were issued, detailing the service, the last obituaries printed, the final pians of praise were sung, and the world went on its way. During the two days thereafter, multitudinous affairs of more imperative public import were brought to light. A celebrated murder was committed. A notorious band of criminals was rounded up. A political boss toppled and fell from his self-made pedestal. A diplomatic scandal of far-reaching effect was unearthed. And in the press of passing events, the fact that Lawton had been eliminated from the scheme of things faded into comparative insignificance, from the point of view of the general public. In the great house on Belair Avenue, which the man who was gone had called home, a tall, slender young girl sat listlessly conversing with a pompous little man whose clerical garb proclaimed the reason for his coming. The girl's sable garments pathetically betrayed her youth, and in her soft eyes was the pained and wounded look of a child face to face with its first comprehended sorrow. The Reverend Dr. Franklin lay an obsequious hand upon her arm. "'The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord!' Anita Lawton shivered slightly, and raised a trembling, protesting hand. "'Please,' she said softly, "'I know. 
I heard you say that at St. James's two days ago. I try to believe, to think, that in some inscrutable way God meant it for the best when he took my father so ruthlessly from me, with no premonition, no sign of warning. It is hard, Dr. Franklin. I cannot coordinate my thoughts just yet. You must give me a little time. The minister bent his short body still lower before her. My dear child, do you remember also a later prayer in the same service? Unconsciously he assumed the full, rich, rounded pulpit tones which were habitual with him. Lord, thou hast been our refuge from one generation to another, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever the earth and world were made. A low knocking upon the door interrupted him, and the butler appeared. Mr. Rockamore and Mr. Mallow, Anita Lawton read aloud from the cards he presented. Oh, I can't see them now. Tell them, Wilkes, that my minister is with me, and they must forgive me for denying myself to them. The butler retired, and the Reverend Dr. Franklin, at the mention of two of the most prominent and influential men in the city since the death of Lawton, turned bulging, inquiring eyes upon the girl. My dear child, is it wise for you to refuse to see two of your father's best friends? You will need their help, their kindness. A woman alone in the world, no matter how exalted her position, needs friends. Mr. Mallow is not one of my parishioners, but I understand that as president of the street railways, he was closely associated with your dear father in many affairs of finance. Mr. Rockamore I know to be a man of almost unlimited power in the world in which Mr. Lawton moved. Should you not see them? Remember that you are under my protection in every way, of course. But since our Heavenly Father has seen fit to take unto himself your dear one, I feel that it would be advisable for you to place yourself under the temporal guidance of those whom he trusted, at any rate for the time being. Oh, I feel that they were my father's friends, but not mine. Since mother and my little sister and brother were lost at sea so many years ago, I have learned to depend wholly upon my father, who was more comrade than parent. Then, as you know, I met Raymond, a uh, Mr. Hamilton, and of course I trust him as implicitly as I must trust you. But although on many occasions I assisted my father to receive his financial confrères on a social basis, I cannot feel at a time like this that I care to talk with any except those who are nearest and dearest to me. But suppose they have come, not wholly to offer you consolation, but to confer with you upon some business matters, upon which it would be advantageous for you to inform yourself. Your grief and desire for seclusion are most natural, under the circumstances, but one must sometimes consider earthly things also. The minister's evidently eager desire to be present at an interview with the great men and to place himself on a more familiar footing with them was so obvious that Anita's gesture of dissent held also something of repugnance. I could not, Dr. Franklin, perhaps later, when the first shock has passed, but not yet. You understand that I like them both most cordially. Those whom father trusted must be men of sterling worth. But just now I feel as must an animal which has been beaten. I want to creep off into a dark and silent place until my misery dulls a little. You have borne up wonderfully well, dear child, under the severe shock of this tragedy. Mrs. Franklin and I have remarked upon it. You have exhibited the same self-mastery and strength of character which made your father the man he was. Dr. Franklin arose from his chair with a sigh, which was not altogether perfunctory. Think well over what I have said. Try to realize that your only consolation and strength in this hour of your deepest sorrow come from on high, and believe that if you take your poor, crushed heart to the throne of grace, it shall be healed. That has been promised us. Think also of what I have just said to you, concerning your father's associates, and when next they call, as they will, of course, do very shortly, 
try to receive them with your usual gracious charms, and should they offer you any advice upon worldly matters, which we must not permit ourselves to neglect, send for me. I will leave you now. Mrs. Franklin will call upon you to-morrow. Try to be brave and calm, and pray for the guidance which will be vouchsafed you, should you ask it, frankly and freely. Anita Lawton gave him her hand and accompanied him in silence to the door. There, with a few gentle words, she dismissed him, and when the sound of his measured footsteps had diminished, she closed the door with a little gasp of half-relief, and turned to the window. It had been an effort to her to see and talk with her spiritual adviser, whose hypocrisy she had vaguely felt. If only Raymond had come, Raymond, whose wife she would be in so short a time, and who must now be father as well as husband to her. She glanced at the little French clock on the mantel. He was late. He had promised to be there at four. As she parted the heavy curtains, the telephone upon her father's desk, in the corner, shrilled sharply. When she took the receiver off the hook, the voice of her lover came to the girl as clearly, tenderly, as if he himself stood beside her. "'Anita, my dear, may I come to you now?' "'Oh, please do, Raymond. I have been waiting for you. Dr. Franklin called this afternoon, and while he was here with me, Mr. Rockamore and Mr. Mallow came, but I could not see them. There is something I feel I must talk over with you.' She hung up the receiver with a little sigh, and for the first time in days a faint suspicion of a smile lightened her face. As she turned away, however, her eyes fell upon the great leather chair by the hearth, and her expression changed as she gave an uncontrollable shudder. It was in that chair her father had been found on that fateful morning, about a week ago, clad still in the dinner clothes of the previous evening, a faint, introspective smile upon his keen, inscrutable face, his eyes wide, with a politely inquiring stare, as if he had looked upon things which until then had been withheld from his vision. She walked over to the chair, and laid her hand where his head had rested. Then, all at once, the tension within her seemed to snap, and she flung herself within its capacious, wide-reaching arms in a torrent of tears, the first she had shed. It was thus that Raymond Hamilton found her on his arrival twenty minutes later, and without ado he gathered her up, carried her to the window-seat, and made her cry out her heart upon his shoulder. When she was somewhat quieted, he said to her gently, "'Dearest, why will you insist on coming to this room, of all others, at least just for a little time? The memories here will only add to your suffering.' "'I don't know. I can't explain it. That chair there in which poor father was found has a peculiar, dreadful fascination for me. I have heard that murderers invariably return, sooner or later, to the scene of their crime. May we not also have the same desire, to stay close to the place, when someone we love has departed?' "'You are morbid, my dear.' Bring your maid and come to my mother's house for a little, as she has repeatedly asked you to do. It will make it so much easier for you. Perhaps it would. Your mother has been so very kind, and yet I feel that I must remain here, that there is something for me to do. I don't understand. What do you mean, dearest? She turned swiftly and placed her hands upon his broad shoulders. Her childish eyes were steely, with an intensity of purpose hitherto foreign to them. Raymond, there is something I have not told you or any one, but I feel that the time has come for me to speak. It is not nervousness or imagination. It is a fact which occurred on the night of my father's death. Why speak of it, Anita? He took her hands from his shoulders and pressed them gently, but with quiet strength. It is all over now, you know. We must not dwell too much upon what is past. I shall have to help you to put it all from your mind, not to forget, but to make your memories tender and beautiful." "'But I must speak of it. 
It will be on my mind day and night until I have told you. Raymond, you dined with us that night, the night before. Did my father seem ill to you? Of course not. I have never known him to be in better health and spirits. Raymond glanced at her in involuntary surprise. Are you sure? Why do you ask me that? You know that heart disease may attack one at any time without warning. Anita sank upon the window seat again and leaned forward pensively, her hands clasped over her knees. You will remember that after you and father had your coffee and cigars together in the dining room, you both joined me? Of course, you were playing the piano, ramblingly, as if your thoughts were far away, and you seemed nervous, ill at ease. I wondered about it at the time. It was because of father. To you he appeared in the best of spirits, as you say, but I, who knew him better than anyone else on earth, realized that he was forcing himself to be genial, to take an interest in what we were saying. For days he had been overwrought and depressed. As you know, he has confided in me, absolutely, since I have been old enough to be a real companion to him. I thought that I knew all his business affairs, those of the last two or three years at least, but latterly his manner has puzzled and distressed me. Then, while you were in the dining-room, the telephone rang twice. Yes, the calls were for your father. When he was summoned to the wire, he immediately had the connection given to him on his private line, here in the library. After he returned to the dining-room, he did seem slightly absent-minded, now that I think of it, but it did not occur to me that there could have been any serious trouble. You know, dearest, ever since the evening when he promised to give you to me, he has consulted me also, to a great extent about his financial interests. And I think if any difficulty had arisen, he would have mentioned it. Still, I am convinced that something was on his mind. I tried to approach him concerning it, but he was evasive, and put me off laughingly. You know that father was not the sort of man whose confidence could be forced, even by those dearest to him. I had been so worried about him, though, that I had a nervous headache, and after you left, Raymond, I retired at once. An hour or two later, father had a visitor. That fact, as you know, the coroner elicited from the servants. But it had, of course, no bearing on his death, since the caller was Mr. Rockamore. I heard his voice when I opened the door of my room, after ringing for my maid to get some lavender salts. I could not sleep. My headache grew worse, and while I was struggling against it, I heard Mr. Rockamore depart, and my father's voice in the hall after the slamming of the front door, telling Wilkes to retire, that he would need him no more that night. I heard the butler's footsteps pass down the hall, and then I rose and opened my door again. I don't know why, but I felt that I wanted to speak to father when he came up on his way to bed. Anita paused, and Raymond, in spite of himself, felt a thrill of puzzled wonder at her expression, upon which a dawning look, almost of horror, spread and grew. But he did not come, and after a while I stole to the head of the stairs and looked down. There was a low light in the hall, and a brighter one from the library, the door of which was ajar. I supposed that father was working late over some papers, and I knew that I must not disturb him. I crept back to bed at last, with a sigh, but left my own door slightly open, so that if I should happen to be awake when he passed, I might call to him. Presently, however, I dozed off. I don't know how long I slept, but I awakened to hear voices, angry voices, my father's and another, which I did not recognize. I got up, and by the nightlight I saw that the hands of the little clock on my dresser pointed to nearly three o'clock. I could not imagine who would call on father so very late at night, and I feared at first it might be a burglar. But my common sense assured me that father would not stop to parley with a burglar. 
While I stood wondering, father raised his voice slightly, and I caught one word which he uttered. Raymond, that word sounded to me like blackmail. Why, what is it? Why do you look at me so strangely? She added hastily, at his uncontrollable start. I? I am not looking at you strangely, dear. It is not possible that you could have heard aright. It must have been simply a fancy of yours, born of the state of your nerves. You could not really have understood. But Raymond Hamilton looked away from her as he spoke, with a peculiarly significant gleam in his candid eyes. After a slight pause, he went on. No one in the world could have attempted to blackmail your father. He was the soul of honor and integrity, as no one knows better than you. Why, his opinion was sought on every public question. You remember hearing of some of the political honors which he repeatedly refused. But he could, had he wished, have held the highest office at the disposal of the people. You must have been mistaken, Anita. There has never been a reason for the word blackmail to cross your father's lips. I know that I was not mistaken, for I heard more, enough to convince me that I had been right in my surmise. Father was keeping something from me. Dear little girl, suppose he had been. Nothing, of course, that could possibly reflect upon his integrity. Don't misunderstand me. But you are only twenty, you know. It is not to be expected that you could quite comprehend the details of all the varied business interests of a man who had virtually led the finances of his country for more than twenty years. Perhaps it was a purely business matter. I tell you, Raymond, that that man, whoever he was, actually dared to threaten father. When I heard that word blackmail in the angriest tones which I had ever heard my father use, I did something mean, despicable, which only my culminating anxiety could have induced me to do. I slipped on my robe and slippers, stole halfway downstairs, and listened deliberately. Anita, you should not have done that. It was not like you to do so. If your father had wished you to know of this interview, don't you think he would have told you? Perhaps he would have, but what opportunity was he given? A few hours later he was found dead in that chair over there, the chair in which he sat while he was talking with his unknown visitor. The young man sprang to his feet. You can't realize what you are saying, what you are hinting. It is unthinkable. If you let these morbid fancies prey upon your mind, you will be really ill. His tones were full of horror. Your father died of heart disease. The doctors and the coroner established that beyond the shadow of a doubt, you know. Any other supposition is beyond the bounds of possibility. Of heart disease, yes. But might not the sudden attack have been brought on by his altercation with this man, his sudden rage, controlled as it was, at the insults hurled at him? What insults, Anita? Tell me what you heard when you crept down the stairs. You know you can trust me, dear. You must trust me. The man was saying, Come, Lawton, be sensible. Half a loaf is better than no bread. There is no blackmail about this, even if you choose to call it so. It is an ordinary business proposition, as you have been told a hundred times. It's a damnable crooked scheme, as I have told you a hundred times, and I shall have nothing to do with it. This is final. Father's tones rang out clearly and distinctly, quivering with suppressed fury. My hands are clean. My financial operations have been open and above board. There is no stain upon my life or character, and I can look every man in the face and tell him to go where you may go now. Oh, is that so? sneered the other man loudly. Then his voice became insinuatingly low. How about poor Herbert? His tones were so indistinct that I could not catch the name. Then he went on more defiantly. His wife. He didn't finish the sentence, Raymond, for father groaned suddenly, terribly, as if he were in swift pain. The man gave a little sneering laugh, and I could hear him moving about in the library, whistling half under his breath in sheer bravado. I could not bear to hear any more. 
I put my hands over my ears and fled back to my room. What could it mean, Raymond? What is this about father and some other man and his wife, which the stranger dared to insinuate, reflected upon my father's integrity? Why should he have groaned as if the very mention of these people hurt him inexpressibly? I don't know, dear. Raymond Hamilton sat, with his honest eyes still turned from her. You must have been mistaken. Perhaps you even dreamed it all. Anita Lawton gave an impatient gesture. I am not quite the child you think me, Raymond. Could that man have meant to insinuate that father, in his own advancement, had trod upon and ruined someone else, as financiers have always done? Could he have meant that father had driven this man and his wife to despair? I cannot bear to think of it. I try to thrust it from my thoughts a dozen times a day, but that groan from father's lips sounded so much like one of remorse, that hideous ideas come beating in on my brain. Was my father like other rich men, Raymond? He did not live for money, although the successful manipulation of it was almost a passion with him. He lived for me, always for me, and the good that he would be able to do in this world. Of course he did, darling. No one who knew him could imagine otherwise for a moment. He hesitated, and then added, No one else discovered this man's presence in the house that night? You have told no one? Not the doctor, or the coroner, or Dr. Franklin? Oh, no, if I had it would have been necessary for me to have told what I overheard. Besides, it could have had no direct bearing on Daddy's death. That was caused by heart disease, as you say. But I believe, and I will always believe, that that man killed Father, as surely as inevitably as if he had stabbed or shot or poisoned him why did he come like a thief in the night father's integrity his honour were known to all the world why did that reference to this herbert and his wife cause him such pain i don't know dear i have no more idea than you if you really really overheard that conversation as you seem convinced you did you did well in keeping it to yourself let that hour remain buried in your thoughts as in your father's grave only rest assured that whatever it is, it casts no stain upon your father's good name or his memory. He rose and gathered her into his arms. I must go now, Anita. I'll come again to-morrow. You are quite sure you will not accept my mother's invitation? I really think it would be better for you. She looked deeply into his eyes, then drew herself gently from his clasp. Not yet. Thank her for me, Raymond, with all my heart. But I will not leave my father's house just yet, even for a few days. I am sure that I shall be happier here. He kissed her and left the room. She stood where he had left her until she heard the heavy thud of the front door. Then, turning to the window, she thrust her slim little hand between the sedately drawn curtains and waved him a tender good-bye. Then, with a little sigh, she dropped among the pillows of the couch, lost in thought. "'Whatever was meant by that conversation which I overheard,' she murmured to herself, "'Raymond knows.' I read it in his eyes. The young man, as he made his way down the crowded avenue, was turning over in his mind the extraordinary story which the girl he loved had told him. What could it mean? Who could the man have been? Surely not Herbert himself, and yet, oh, why will they not let sleeping dogs lie? Why must that old scandal, that one stain on Pennington Lawton's past, have been brought again to light, and at such a time? I pray God that Anita never mentions it to anyone else, never learns the truth. By Jove, if any complications arise from this, there will be only one thing for me to do. I must call upon the mastermind. End of chapter 1